Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Okay, welcome to this evening's event. My name is Paul Kelly, Professor of Political Theory and Head of the Government Department at the London School of Economics. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to tonight's event on global discord, values, power in a fractured world order. Brought to you by the LSE Economics Department and the Bradley Foundation. The subject of tonight's session is Paul Tucker's book, Global Discord, and Paul will introduce that and then there will be a panel discussion. So let me just introduce our primary speaker, Sir Paul Tucker. Paul is currently a research fellow at the Mosulah Romani Centre at Harvard and um, Harvard Kennedy School. Um, he's a senior fellow at Harvard Centre for European Studies and president of the UK National Institute for Economic and Social Research. He was a former deputy governor of Bank of England, but he didn't want me to say that, so I'll stop there. But there are other such people in this Europe. He's author not only of Global Discord, but his previous book, Unelected Power The Quest for Legitimacy in Central Banking and the Regulatory State which brings the issue of the legitimacy of autonomous institutions such as central banks in democracies and where their right power comes from. In his current book, we're going to be looking at this issue of legitimacy from a global Paul will introduce his book and then we'll turn to a discussion and I'm very glad to be able to welcome our panel. Firstly, Professor John Yu. John's Professor of History and Foreign Policy at King's College London. And perhaps more importantly for now, he's a Foreign Policy Advisor um, to the UK Prime Minister. I'm also joined by my colleague from the Ellison Government Department, Professor Stephanie Rickard. Stephanie is an expert on the international economic, on international economic relations and author of the book, Spending to Win. So ladies and gentlemen, as I say, are any questions, that is your panel. We'll begin with a presentation from, some, from Paul, who will introduce some of the key themes, complex and wide-ranging book. We'll then have uh, responses from John and from Stephanie, and I'll say some things as appropriate, but there will be plenty of time for questions from the floor. Um, for those of you who are interested and who need this sort of stuff, um, the uh, hashtag LSEECOM, so LSEECOM, okay, for this event, there will be book signing. And so, that's enough for me, and let me introduce Paul Tucker to give us the key themes for this rather wonderful and uh, very important book. Paul. Thank you very much for giving up the time, and thank you very much to Paul and John and Stephanie for being here. And I thought Peter Wilson was going to be here as well, which um, he's, he's a scholar of international relations with a background in the English school, 
of international relations. And I mention that because this is the home uh, in many respects of the English School of International Relations. This is not the first time I've discussed this book in Europe. It is the first time I've discussed this book in the, in the UK. Um, the person I think, I suspect I need to thank most for that is Tim Besley, uh, with whom I discussed the possibility of this back in the summer. And I really have for, for organizing it. Thank you very much indeed for, for having me. The, the, the book is quite long. It's about 450 um, pages of main text. It has a structure that moves through the history of international corporation institutions, through some political economy of cooperation, through some history of, of geopolitics, and on to some political theory, legitimation, um, which delivers some principles of international cooperation, which I then apply to the main economic regimes. The book, the book is not an economics book. It does culminate in the last fifth in, in, as I say, applications to trade, cross-border investment, the monetary system, and the, and the financial system. But I, but I want to start with a slide that gives you um, not the structure of the book as it's told, um, but the analytical structure of the book, which is essentially, it moves from a conception of legitimacy, which I will say a little bit about, uh, this evening, and it uses that to try to make a contribution to international political theory, a lot of which is Wolseum. This is miles away from Wolseum, political theory, although it tries to address that um, head on. It then, um, it then brings in current geopolitics, which are very tense, to try to make a contribution to international relations scholarship essentially, if I can put it in a juvenile way, by bolting a Scotsman, David Hume, onto English School of International uh, Relations. And then, as I say, it starts to, in that high road, it descends through principles of, of participation and delegation in international regimes to the main international economic regimes. I'm going to start with some remarks on geopolitics. Um, and I will speak for around 20 minutes. And Paul, if you warn me when I've got to about 17, I can I can then descend uh, whatever pace up um, um, I need to, to to land at 20. Um, I think the contest between the West, by which I mean constitutional democracies or healthy constitutional democracies, both in the geographic West and the geographic East and the People's Republic of China, I think that's going to go on for a long century. I don't think it's certainty that that would be, I would have fairly high probability um, on that. Barring um, social revolution or a decisive conflict of some kind, the, the book is predicated on the assumption that there will not be a decisive conflict. I think actually what it's worth, I think over the next 25 years, I would put something like a 10% probability on there being conflict of some kind, by which I mean kind of hard um, conflict. Parallels are, are commonly drawn um, between this situation and that between the German Second Reich and Britain at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. I think that's misleading in, in many respects, for reasons that we can discuss if you like. I think a more instructive um, parallel at 
at least for those of us in the West, is between France and Britain in the long 18th century, essentially from 1689 to, through to 1815. And the reason for that is that that contest also was everywhere and in everything. And it was quite unlike the, the post-Second World War, Cold War, in two dislocated um, economic blocks. France and, and Britain were meeting each other via commerce of all kinds everywhere in the world. Um, and there were moments of accommodation. Um, they, they agreed a kind of trade treaty in the middle of the 18th century, which never were taken forward because they then found themselves at war again. And they didn't actually get back to that moment until the um, 1860s. It, something else that I think is important uh, to, to say, not particularly to defend now, is that there are a number of commentators in the, in the West, perhaps especially in the, in the US, but also in, in Britain, who say, well, actually, China's economy has all of these vulnerabilities, um, essentially financial credit vulnerabilities, property central vulnerabilities, and these are going to crystallize at some point. And I think that's reasonably likely by no means certain. And I think if and when that happens, there'll be a declaration, oh, it's all over, and back to normal, US hegemony, and I think that's absolute nonsense. I, th I think China um, is prosperous enough and big enough to be able to sustain itself as a major power in the world, even if it has a bad few years or a bad half decade or a bad decade in terms of, of um, economic um, growth. I think this contest, it's important to say, I think it will play out um, significantly through international regimes of all kinds and international organizations. And one of the things I want to say right at the beginning is that one of the reasons I wrote the book is that I think that this is a world in which policy silos um, are, should be over which is the same saying as that they will be over. And I will start with a story. Charlie will remember, Charlie Bean sitting towards the front, will remember this period in the Bank of England. I don't know how this news was delivered to you. Someone walks into my office when I was standing up on the bank and says, the Federal Reserve, the US Federal Reserve, the Central Bank has refused India a swap line. Technicalities of swap lines don't matter. One iota, just a credit line from the United States Central Bank to India to help them weather the financial crisis 2008-2009. Federal Reserve said no. My response to this was, don't they realize India's going to be a power? And the point is that I thought that choice um, was above the Federal Reserve's pay grade. I thought that, that this was a world in which central banks could no longer live in silos um, where they could take decisions about towards other foreign central banks, um, irrespective of foreign policy relations. I thought that that was already um, over. The, the book runs with four scenarios for the next, let's say, 25, 30 years. One is lingering status quo. The second is superpower struggle. The third is new Cold War. And the fourth is a new world. Um, order. When I started writing the book, uh, when I started thinking about the book in 2016, when I gave something called the Tacitus Lecture in London, um, at the time I thought we were between a lingering status quo and a superpower struggle. Uh, I now think almost every front other than one, which I perhaps come to at the end, I think we're between superpower struggle and the new Cold War, uh, which has all sorts of dangers. Um, 
I don't think we will see a new world order until other states, most likely India, conceivably Indonesia, basically any state with a very large population with the potential to grow at a fairly fast rate for a number of years and, and, and reap the advantages of compound growth, where the key advantage in this respect is becoming prosperous enough to spend a lot on security and, and the military without damaging domestic prosperity. Um, in, in ways that damage um, politics at, at home. So that's the geopolitical backdrop. The international relations backdrop, which I'm going to, for those of you that are international relations scholars, and I know some of you um, uh, are, and for those of you that are international relations students, I have to apologize that I'm now going to say something tremendously crude for those that are not international relations experts. So what international relations um, discipline is, is like, just imagine this, not literally true, is that you're going through your, um, your grad studies and you're sent to a room and in the room you're going to be told whether you're a Hobbesian, in which case you're basically going to focus on, on power and security and the world is anarchic and international cooperation is a charade or as we put it, phenomenal. Um, and interests drive everything and cooperation is always on the brink of unraveling. Or you're told that you're a Kantian, in which case the application of reason can get us to, to harmony, because surely um, harmony would be a good um, thing, and you'll be interested in human rights, and the mood is optimistic. Or in the middle way, which takes part of its inspiration from Hugo Grotius, and to some extent, Hufendorf, um, you try to find a, a middle ground between um, those two. And the approach is, is rationalistic, and the emphasis is on interdependence and the opportunities for cooperation, and that you can have international society in an anarchic um, world. And the English school here, Hedley Bull, Ian Clark, uh, Andrew Horrell, um, Barry Booz, and many others um, that pass through this university were kind of part of, of that. The, where I depart from that, for what it's worth, is it, the, the Peruvian approach tends to be deductive. It kind of finds some of its roots in, in natural law. Um, my approach is far more inductive and is in the spirit of, of, of Hume rather than of the early natural um, lawyers. The, something that the English school um, scholars um, emphasized back in the 50s and 60s, but if not, if not before, was a distinction between order system and society. And I've got a slightly more than a gloss. I, I want to be a bit more precise, at least I try to be a bit more precise about what these things are. I think of, of, of any type of cooperation within a state, within a village actually, um, certainly between states, as depending upon a, a basic order of some kind. Um, and that basic order internationally, it may be through a balance of power, it may be through a security hegemon of the kind that the United States has been since the end of the, of the Cold War. And the, the institutions associated with that, I want to say, will be self-enforcing. And something that runs through the book is, is the spirit of kind of mechanism design um, economics. Whereas lower institutions, lower level institutions, are against truth in the state as well are going to call upon, rely upon these higher level um, institutions um, to be um, 
enforced. And to the extent that um, you either believe that already or after reading the book believe that, an important consequence of that is that the lower level institutions, including all international regimes of the kinds that people study, WTO, WHO, IMF, etc., um, they are all going to be shaped by the norms that hold the higher level order um, together. And an important move in the book is that is that these higher-level self-enforcing institutions are ultimately held together um, by some kind of compound of, of norms and fear. Because everybody else, uh, otherwise, if it's just interests, you, you have powerful incentives to be a free rider and allow others to take the burden of maintaining the balance of power or whatever um, it is. And amongst these norms that do this, this work, they do a lot of work in the, in the book. Legitimation norms are the most um, important. So, Henry Ball talks about international society, and he, and he plainly, he and his, his successors plainly recognize that international society can take lots of different forms. But I think it helps to draw on the language of, of moral philosophy in thinking about so any society, national society and international society, as ranging from either thin through thick um, to deep. Now, for those of you that are interested in moral philosophy, I define um, thick societies in terms of think of valuative concepts, think of words like cruel that are both descriptive um, and and normative. And where you share thick concepts, thick evaluative concepts with somebody, again in a village, in a state, among states, you can cooperate with them um, more easily or with less difficulty than you can cooperate uh, with somebody with whom you only share thin concepts, good, right, bad, um, which are kind of more binary in some respects, and a normative without being. Um, descriptive. The, a further crucial move in the book, this may be the most important move in the book altogether, is that the legitimation norms that, that um, animate a particular political society um, are history dependent, their path dependent. That doesn't mean that they're not exposed to reflection, but that they will be the product and part of the opportunities and problems that a particular community um, encountered. But to the extent that that's true, and I believe it to be um, true, then the legitimation norms that animate and in some sense constitute different states are going to be different to the extent that they have very different um, histories. And of course, the history of China is very different to the history of the, the West geographic reasons, um, but not only because of, of that. And therefore, um, it seems to me to be an elemental truth of the world that their legitimation norms that have run through their political society for a long time, not just since the early 20th century revolution or the mid-20th century revolution, are fundamentally different in some respects um, from the legitimation norms that, that find their roots in European 
um, history or its North American um, variants. And the point of this is that we have something that looks a bit more like civilizational um, complement, a standard Thucydian story of the rising um, state creating anxiety and jealousy for the incumbent um, superpower. But that would be misleading. Um, and actually, I ended up thinking that this was one of the most important. I think what I'm going to say is obvious, but I, it's ended up being very important for me. This, to the extent that this book is skeptical and worried about the rise of China, that is not about Chinese civilization or Chinese people. I think that the, 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 the manifest success of Confucian heritage states in becoming constitutional democracies, South Korea and Japan being obvious examples. With South Korea perhaps the most important because they were the, the, the first state in the old tribute system of international relations operated by Beijing for many centuries, by Beijing for many centuries. It's tremendously important that they become constitutional democracies without giving up their sense of their history or their sense of themselves or their way of life. Um, now, though the PRC is different, is, is there are lots of ways of, of demonstrating this, but the cleanest way this evening is for me just to draw on document nine that was supposedly leaked, but anyway, it came out from the Central Committee in 2013. I'd like to go hands off at this point. How many people have heard of Document 9 and the seven notes? Well, only because I read your book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I haven't heard of them before researching uh, this book. They, it was leaked when I was still in office. Um, I wasn't told about this by um, the Foreign Office, which I think was a bad thing. The seven notes include things like um, not promoting no to promoting constitutional democracy, no to universal values, no to civil society with individual rights, no to total marketization, um, no to journalism via a free press, no to questioning the socialist nature, socialism with Chinese um, characteristics. Where the book ends up is is sweepingly again. It, it, it is easy to cooperate more deeply with those whom we fear least and have most in common. This is a world of concentric circles. We don't live in a world of, of Rawls's law of peoples where we can think of dangerous large states as somehow beyond the pale and capable of being kept there. Um, there's no way that the people's republic can be kept beyond the pale or not capable of doing that. They're massive and powerful. We need peaceful coexistence with the people's republic. We also probably need to cooperate with them um, on certain existential threats, including climate change. But it does mean that um, the account of the book would suggest that the trade should be limited to areas where we are not going to be over-dependent um, and therefore vulnerable. And that's symmetric. That would, it, that would actually be the policy I would recommend for them as well. But where we have more in common, including um, genuinely believes subscribing to and, and living by the peremptory norms of um, international law against genocide and slavery and torture and so on, although we can feel a bit more secure about cooperating more. And as we show more and more, we can, we can cooperate more and more. I know the other side of the, the, the water 
Um, that's exactly what the EU is. The EU is an exercise in very deep cooperation through because they share deep norms. The Brexit referendum, in a way, is a way of saying that this country does not share um, all of those norms to the same extent. I will say one thing about one policy area. But first of all, I want to say that policy should be robust. It should aim to minimize the maximum damage that could be done to our way of life um, from plausible worst outcomes. And that therefore, our policy regimes should be um, resilient. And secondly, that um, in delegating power or pooling power in international um, um, organizations, we, we can't um, jeopardize our most basic values. So we, we, we can't go to national organizations, um, the effect of which could be to, to undermine all the home or legitimacy of home. We, we can't go into international organizations, and I would say, give so much power to an appellate body or to the, or to the managing directors of an international organization that actually that violates our sense of how policy should be made at home, because otherwise we could just shift um, policy making out of democratic and liberal channels into international organizations. Um, we should have a liberal state, should have a bias to um, universalism, um, making it possible for like-minded states to do more underneath. I will do one example, if I may, which is around the WTO. This example is um, intended to demonstrate how difficult things are going to be. So, um, not quite a decade ago, there was an important subsidies case in WTO. And China uh, can be using its state-owned enterprises to subsidize um, exports. It could be the reasonable thing to do from their point of view. Um, subsidies are illegal for a tanto under, under the WTO. The US said so, and therefore they were entitled to bring countervailing measures. Think about this as, as China reducing um, the, the cost of imports into the United States, and the United States imposing tariffs to push the cost of imports back up. Um, China took the WTO to the US to the to the WTO and said these countervailing measures were were illegal because their own subsidies were legal. This went all the way up to the appellate board. The appellate board decided that they were indeed legal, but for the peculiar reason that the bar was on public bodies providing um, subsidies, and Chinese state-owned enterprises didn't count as. Um, public bodies. This, of course, in terms of, of, of this may be a proper reading of the treaty, but it's plainly not a stable policy um, position. It's slightly ludicrous, and, and, and in a sense, the appellate board is slightly out of their depth. But they're out of their depth for a, for a very interesting reason, which is so we are in Britain. Um, our courts do a really great job of reading laws. This is what the law says. Sometimes the results are absurd. Parliament changes the law. So what you would expect to happen in the circumstances I've just described is there's the appellate board has read the treaty, they've decided what the treaty says, the US has lost, China has won, but now there needs to be some kind of bargaining process between China, Beijing, and Washington, perhaps with Brussels there, perhaps with Tokyo there, to reshape the, the rules of the game in some way. Except they can't, because everybody in the WTO has a veto. So the WTO was written as though it was the perfect contract. Because it was written as though it was the perfect contract, 
It was written in a way that made the appellate board arbiters of geopolitics. That is a really badly designed um, international institution, and one that cannot possibly be cured because reforming it is subject to the veto. Um, and this is why President, the Trump administration was so very stupid um, not to take America into the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which basically set up a sub-WTO um, type system, but with revised provisions on subsidies um, for the Pacific world. And the point isn't that um, that is the most important thing in the world ever. It's that the design of international institutions comes into a completely different light when geopolitics is at stake, and it is. Thank you very much. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Excellent panel member, John, to give us some reflections on the book and some of the views that the book has Excellent. Um, can everybody hear me? Okay, perfect. Um, well, thank you very much for, thank you to the LSE for this invitation. Um, if only because I got a free copy um, of this book, which is, uh, I would recommend strongly to you, and I'm going to tell you why I'd recommend the book, both for those of you who are studying and thinking about international relations, but also for those of you who uh, are currently or may want to in the future engage and think about policy, international affairs, geoeconomics, and strategy, so I think it has something for, for, for people in both worlds and perhaps something for people who straddle both worlds as well. It is a smart book. Um, um, it is intellectually ambitious. Yet, importantly, and I will start and end on this point, is also about the limits uh, of knowledge and the humility that should come with knowledge. And I'll, I'll tell you why I think at the end that it is a book that captures rather than a precise theory, is a case for a theory of everything. Um, the book, uh, and this is in Paul's opening anecdote, speaks to a period um, at the end of the Cold War in which economics was, uh, in many cases, detached from geopolitics, um, or geopolitics was regarded as detached from economics. And it enters, and it, the, the, the book is contribution to the world in which that, that sort of sense and set of assumptions is completely fractured and broken. And if we think about security, we think about strategy, we think about systemic competition and challenges that, that, that it's, it's, it's about sort of fusing once again those geostrategic considerations, those geopolitical considerations, and those geo geoeconomic considerations. Now that in itself is not particularly original. I think we have three decades of books that diagnose and call out this notional Western delusion or illusion about the way the world is. Um, uh, and many academic studies, many public political essays, many prime ministerial or foreign secretary style speeches that angst 
and question this um, uh, 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 disastrous or so-called disastrous misconception we had in these two phases, both after the Cold War and then also in that early phase of the 21st century in which we were perceived to be too naive, too idealistic, uh, and insufficiently prepared for the challenges ahead. Uh, there are many books like that uh, that deconstruct but I think what's important about this book is that it attempts on the basis of that deconstruction to begin to construct on the basis of the fragments or the existing uh, uh, superstructure and in the base that, that, that sits, sits, sits beneath it. Construct a theory and a way of thinking about international relations. Uh, and by the end of it, even if we hear that the order is, is, is dislocated, uh, uh, discordant and problematic, that there is enough raw material, there are enough um, if one understands the different power dynamics, there are enough static things in that international order for, to provide uh, something to build upon as well. So it is constructive rather than deconstructive uh, in its approach. Uh, two key concepts, I think, that landed uh, in, in my brain on the back of the book um, were security, uh, and it has an expansive notion of security and national security that goes beyond what we would previously conceived in the immediate um, um, uh, years of the start of the century, and the legitimacy. So there's a read across to Henry Kissinger's, Kissinger's book on, on world order, I think, as well. Uh, and that sort of that sort of identification of legitimacy and the need for political legitimacy, which is also previous book as well, is the other kind of core concept around which the, 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 the structure is built. Um, when I say that this, 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 this thinking has been sort of identified in, in various essays and, 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 and uh, um, theological approaches to the problem, current problems or so-called crisis of world order, um, it's not often been translated into policy terms. And for a, a different purpose and, and uh, with a different hat on, I was reading the uh, UK's uh, Strategic Defence and Security Review of 2011, which started the last decade. Um, uh, and reflecting upon that as well, which did not have the word um, uh, 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 discord um, uh, in it, but did have the notion of disruption. Because what the assumption, the underpinning assumption was in, 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 at the start of the last decade was that the UK, its allies and partners, uh, uh, and with a great deal of accuracy, had inherited a, a certain privileged position in international order, and therefore it was determined to prevent and uh, uh, protect itself against the things that may disrupt that international order. So in that 2011 document, there's a focus on non-state actors or failed state actors as the most likely disruptors against a real space international system. I think where we're coming to and what we get from this book is that that notion of the real space international system that um, even um, uh, has its own R acronym, the ARGUS, has led to, to status quo and to complacent a way of thinking about the international system that lacks that broader um, a sense of a, a systemic challenge and, and, and dynamic. And I've got two questions for Paul. I've not yet finished, but the two questions that I'd like to ask him on, on the back of this one, back to in a moment, um, was, was Paul. Who, who got it right 10 years ago that you were reading? Um, because it's very easy for us all to say that the blinkers have been removed from our eyes. Who got it 10 years ago? And then who, what is it, what will a historian Think about looking at your book as a uh, looking at your book as an early early 2020s product. I think back to the books written in the interwar period that, that one can see very much as a, as, a, as a book of time and place. In 10 years, what would the future historian think of your book? Um, prescient. Um, um, I imagine it's what you think. Um, um, problematic, uh, challenging, in the mode of one type of thinking or another. So to 
terms of grassing that nettle, the way policymakers grass that nettle, uh, I'd just like to make a few um, observations uh, on that before coming back to the, to the theory and academic contribution. The first and most obvious way in which this nettle is being grassed is in US-China competition and the various aspects uh, and dimensions of that. Um, so, that so, so the intellectual awakening and therefore the policy reckoning in the United States is, is a kind of grinding, um, all-encompassing affair. And it's seen in the recent US national security strategy and it's seen in the associated supporting measures taken by the US um, uh, that very much speak to this notion of grand strategy from the um, uh, Inflation Reduction Act to the, to the CHIPS Act um, to this sort of self-protective um, attempt to generate growth in the words of the US national security strategy to out-compete China. So it's the most obvious way of it's this this reckoning, this, this set of challenges to play on. But then there's a whole panoply of, of different circumstances and different perspectives on, on, on that competition uh, in which um, uh, many middle parts um, um, of, uh, with different, different strengths um, that have benefited from a certain type of open international order and benefited from the rosy version of the story are beginning to have to adjust to work together as well. So you see across the world uh, an emphasis on, on, on deeper trading ties, on the, on the quality and depth of relations between countries. So defense industrial technological partnerships are de jure at the moment. And for a country like the UK and many others, um, uh, G, G, G20 for example, uh, the dilemma is partly sharpened by the fact that they sit in a world in which these two uh, relatively benign but increasingly protectionist economic blocks um, set much of the, uh, uh, the wheels in motion and drive much of the, 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 the world of the G7 agenda and that's the United States and the European Union. So the dilemma is starting to play out but I don't think we necessarily have policy answers across the space. And then just a final um, thought on what I think is the most impressive aspect of the book which is this um, uh, uh, sharpness of, 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 of theory and, and uh, deafness with which it deals with these different um, um, intellectual traditions going back to the Scottish Enlightenment but, but um, up to including the uh, English School of, of uh, um, International Relations thinking. Um, the way I sort of frame the book is a cautious pitch for values and it's a, an attack on what you might call a hyper-rationalist mode of thinking uh, and that's very much in the philosophical um, uh, uh, tradition in which uh, Paul situated the book as well. It's an appeal for a certain degree of equilibrium. And here again, I repeat the fact that there's an optimistic tilt at the end, like Paul says, that democracies are, in some respects, uh, likely to be more resilient, and there's a good historical backstory to tell us uh, that story. And secondly, that when it comes to cooperation on global public goods, there is an opportunity, um, because of the sort of shared international challenges we face, to think beyond systemic competition, to think beyond the zero-sum focus of competition. But more than anything, I think it is a, and this is why it's most pertinent, I think, for those interested in, in the move from academia, the way of thinking academically through policy making. It's a kind of theory of everything. And I think that, that is the strength of, of the back of the book. So when, when reading it um, um, over the last few days, I, I kept on wanting to dive back into the index and say, uh, what does Paul say about Edmund Burke? What does Paul say about uh, Karl Marx? What does Paul say? Is it, is it was what Paul said about Leninist theories of change? Um, and I think that sort of intellectual ecumenicism uh, and eclecticism is, is the best 
possible strength of the book. It's anti-theoretical, despite being riddled with theory, um, and, it, and, and, it, and it, is, it, is, it is ecumenical and, and, and will hoover up a piece of information no matter where it comes from. I think that's the best way of moving from an academic mindset to a policy-making mindset. So congratulations to you all. Thank you very much. Riddled with theory and good. And you did ask two questions, Paul, but I'd have to wait until the statements I say, and then we'll come back to more specific Great. Uh, well, let me echo the congratulations to Paul and really encourage everyone to read the book if you haven't already. It's really a masterful lens of this deep understanding of academics, arguments, and, and intellectual theory combined with this hands on, first hand account of policymaking at the very highest level, both domestically and internationally. And that combination is unique, and I learned a lot from it. I'm going to focus my comments on the four scenarios that Paul lays out. He suggests where we might be going, given what we see in the world, given what we've learned from history, given what we've learned from academic theory, where are we going and where might we end up? So he sketches out these four scenarios, and they strike me all as very plausible. You can see parts of them occurring already, happening already. And like Paul, I think we're sort of at a scenario 2.5. And that makes me wonder, question, are any, all, or some of these scenarios stable equilibrium? In other words, if we land on one of these scenarios, if we end up in the new Cold War, scenario three, does any actor have an incentive to get us out of it, to shift us away from it? And I think incentives are a really important theme throughout Paul's book, because as he points out, if something is incentive compatible, it happens. If it doesn't, it won't. So who has incentives? to shift us away from potentially a bad scenario, the new Cold War. And so this brings me to my first point that I want to make, is maybe one of these actors that we should be looking at and thinking about and thinking about their incentives are multinational corporations. Multinational corporations have gotten us to where we are. They played a really important role in shaping the global economy, in shaping the global infrastructure that we see today. Let me give you a couple of examples. So Paul, in his book, traces out this example of the role of MNCs in setting up global supply chains and the legal infrastructure that supports those supply chains. In my own research, I was struck by the fact that MNCs were lobbying intensely at the WTO for an agreement that they really had no economic interest in. This was a very important agreement on fisheries subsidies. There were MNCs lobbying, the head of the ICC was lobbying, and he said to me, we're not really that concerned about fishery subsidies. But we care about the legitimacy of the WTO. We think the WTO is an important organization. We value it. We want it to continue. And we want it to be legitimate. And the only way they thought that would happen is if they got a deal. So they did. After 20 years of negotiations, they got a deal on fishery subsidies. Only the second agreement reached since the Europe around. Third example was the role of the MNCs in getting China into the WTO. China was admitted to the WTO in 2001, and MNCs lobbied hard for this because they thought it was in their best incentive. They lobbied the US government, they lobbied the Canadian government. They wanted China in because they thought it was the best outcome for themselves. So MNCs have played a really important role in getting us to where we are today. And the question, I think, for Paul and for all of us might be, what are their incentives going forward? How are they going to help resolve or not resolve potentially the global discourse and shape the global political economy going forward? So that's my first point. My second point is thinking about 
In these four scenarios, each of them has very different implications for domestic politics and national politics. And so remembering, reminding ourselves that what happens internationally plays out at home. It can change how people vote. It can even change values. So we see this in response to China. Once China joined the WTO, we saw this massive influx of goods flowing from China to the US to the UK. And that mattered. It changed domestic politics. There's really good research that shows that parts of the United States that were more exposed to this dramatic increase in Chinese imports, they experienced job losses, they experienced lower wages, and they changed their politics. People in these areas shifted towards the Republican Party. They voted disproportionately for Trump. In the United Kingdom, these areas that were most exposed to rising Chinese imports disproportionately voted for Brexit. And in my own research, I found that they shifted towards adopting more authoritarian values. So in thinking about the role of values, the importance of ideology, the importance of democracy, I think it would be important and useful to think through, what if we end up in scenario three? How would that change or impact on domestic politics? So that's my second point. My third and final point is to suggest maybe a modification to scenario 2.5. So scenario 2.5 is, you know, there's competition between the US and China that's affecting the global order, but we're not quite in a, in a new Cold War. And let me give you an example of where I think this is best illustrated. China has set up a new international organization. This international organization is the Infrastructure and Investment Bank, AIIB. And in effect, it does pretty much some of the same jobs as the World Bank and the IMF. Now, part of China's motivation for setting up this organization was their frustration with their ability to enact reform or to get reform at the IMF. They haven't given up, they've made some progress, but they said, okay, we're going to set up our own multilateral lending institution. And they've done that. It's headquartered in Beijing. They have their own institution. They give out loans. They help countries that need financing. So there is a new international organization. It does things differently. Research shows that if you borrow from the AIIB, you get loans with relatively fewer conditions, relatively less stringent conditions. Countries are asked to make arguably less painful reforms to get money from AIIB as compared to the IMF. So they are doing business differently. But it doesn't quite uh, have the characteristics of this sort of protectionist block, this alternative way of thinking. In fact, many of the countries that are members of the IMF are members of the AIIB. The AIIB has 106 members, including some of the US's strongest allies, Canada and the UK. So perhaps this suggests that it's, it's not a case of you're either with us or against us. Right? You can be in this organization that's arguably Washington-led, US-led and in this organization that's Chinese. And so maybe what we might see as a result of this competition is a thicker international society, a thicker group of international organizations that are doing the same task in slightly different ways, but without becoming protectionist blocks, without cleaving along ideological lines. So perhaps I'll end on that often more optimistic Choice of, of Hume is a very interesting one. 
Hume thinks of the emergence of norms as kind of solutions to coordination problems, which then give the participants new motives to act in certain kinds of ways. And it's from that we get virtue concepts like this, the importance of promise keeping and so on. And, and Hume thinks this happens in a certain kind of context. He doesn't give us a sense of time. Now, of course, his successors think of history. They take these ideas, and of course, working through history is the kind of reason. In a, in a way, what his successors, his late successors, tend to pick up on is this idea that somehow or other, this process gives us a kind of universal mechanism and that you end up with the kind of idea that you know, soft government plus free trade is going to be the solution to everything. And we're all going to converge on that. So that's kind of Francis Fukuyama's end of history. Now, Fukuyama gets a lot of stick, but his point was really only to reorient ourselves to where that idea of the kind of reason sits in our thinking. And of course, one response to that it's a slightly different realism to the one that you open us up to, is that there isn't a kind of reason, and that over time, these are only temporary equilibria, and they all fall to pieces, and they may fall to pieces quite a lot faster, given some of the new dynamics that the world presents us with, which didn't happen in the 18th century debates about the jealousy of trade. So, there is an issue with history, which we don't have the luxury of Marx that the end history is going to give us emancipation. We don't have the luxury of Hegel that somehow or other the triumph of liberal rights is going to emerge. What we have is a sort of realist world in which some good stuff emerges, but drawing on a slightly different tradition, we have a tendency to break those things. One thing that's one, one thing that can be said about human beings generally is they break stuff. I think people like Ryan Wood and I work on that sort of Christian realism. You know, projects that lead to emancipation always end up creating you know, bad things. Doesn't mean you don't do anything, doesn't mean you don't work to, but the idea that the arc of history tends towards justice is just like faith. We have no and I just wonder then, great things to close and maybe say something. You know, the, the sources of chaos or discord might be other places than the rise of new and difficult global powers. And I'm just thinking of um, somebody who we shouldn't draw many lessons from, Dominic Cummings, writing his kind of insane blog post about why Brexit won, which then was published in the Spectator. One of the things that Cummings picks up is the way in which the extreme has been the thing that has challenged all of us in the face of globalization. And the extreme isn't the challenge of Chinese globalization. It's people like you saving the banking system. It's all, in a way, it's the, it's the outcome of things that you think are very important. Rightly, I'm glad we saved the banking system. 
But the international architecture that becomes the focus of the matter bit is precisely what lots of people who are drawn into populist politics find precisely so challenging. The legitimacy issue then reverts back to domestic politics. We left the European Union just at a time probably staying in something like the European Union would have been a really good idea given that we've now got an interstate war in Europe. So I think the sources of this discord pop up in all sorts of places, and usually not the places where we're currently looking for the big policy challenges. It's rather like in a military strategy. We all think about how we win the last war and how we define it better rather than seeing which turns out to be like an old war that requires tanks and artillery and lots and lots of troops, not cyber warfare. So, so it's this issue of the cunning of reason that comes up and challenges us all along, and whether or not that has a bearing on how long we have to wait before we see this new world where disorder is going to be. Anyway, I, like the others, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And if you've got time, read it. Because even if you disagree with everything in it, that is important. Well, thank you all very, very much. Um, I'll start with where Paul uh, left off. There, there is a sense in which Hume suffers from kind of terminal optimism, which was the view of Bernard Williams, who I didn't mention, but actually is in some respects even more central uh, to the book. Because I, I think Hume is right that, that commercial society can broaden our sense of we. And the book ends with actually a little story which is completely true about my sitting in a cafe in Hong Kong and uh, listening to some um, Cantonese young businesswoman in their um, early 30s, probably that's young to me. Um, and just everything about the conversation just felt completely, completely familiar. I think the last words of the book is, um, this is us, um, plural. But, but to the extent that Hume was a terminal optimist, I mean, we have discovered that it doesn't all work out um, happily. It's uh, the, the First World War, which I mentioned, it is absolutely true that lots of people in this, this country, particularly in the city of London, thought that conflict with, with the Second Reich really wouldn't be possible given the extent of integration between um, commercial Germany and, and commercial um, Britain, but of course it, it was more than, than possible. But what that tells us is, is not that commercial society doesn't over time in slow motion broaden our sense of we. About that, I think we can be reasonably optimistic, but it's really that there, not really, but there are loads of things that can knock us um, off track. Um, for, Followed very, very long periods, <coughs> one of which is geopolitical conflict. But another I completely agree um, would be technology. So, one way of thinking about what's happening in our societies is that the, the mid 20th century clerical middle class, you could regard as absolutely integral to the project of democracy, they are, they are finding that those jobs don't exist to the extent that they did, and that AI may represent a much greater challenge than policymakers in in Beijing, which is a is a different set of issues. But what what I want to emphasize in this book is that in navigating any of those challenges, 
you, you have to hold on to, be clear about and have to hold on to what is absolutely integral to your way of life, having reflected on whether your way of life is worthwhile. And I think that the, the deepest legitimation norms that we carry, which are about the rule of law and constitutionalism and about democracy, that these are really worthwhile things. And that whatever challenge we face, we need to be serious about when they are jeopardized in some way. And so you mentioned the Brexit referendum. I think that the Brexit campaign had a point that, that some kind of metropolitan elite in both main parties had somehow abandoned regular people and that that wasn't a real um, choice. It doesn't mean that the alternative that they were offered was a real choice either. Um, identifying the malaise isn't the same as identifying um, the solution. But I think all of these challenges, whether it's in my previous book, delegated to unelected central bankers and, and antitrust regulators, or passing power into international organizations, or the kind of things that you raise, my measure for all of those things is, well, what does that do to the things that the norms that really hold our societies together? Um, John posed two questions, and Stephanie, I think, posed one. John's, very quickly to John's two questions. Um, and take them in reverse order. How do I think, how would I like someone to look back at this book in, say, 20, 25 years' time? Oh, wasn't he right talking about the importance of India and Indonesia and other states um, like that? That, that, that there won't just be one rising power. To the extent that commercial society works, there are going to be lots of rising powers um, over the next century or so. And, and we need to recognize that now, that we have, that history doesn't give us a right to be top dog um, um, forever, and so we need to take them um, seriously and understand them, and understand their own histories and actually our role in their histories. We do it on China. We need to know more about our role in the century of humiliation, and we need to know more about other parts of Chinese history, not least so that we, we can inhale the bits that we think are robust and then ignore the bits that, that aren't. Who do I think it got, got it right 10 years ago? This will bridge to Stephanie's point. In some respects, I don't think any thinkers particularly got it right in an interesting way. I think the most interesting people, some of the, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna name people, but I have certain people in mind. Um, some of the old China trading hands, who decided they were going to be um, trade, trade with China, which is a fantastic opportunity and all those good things, and would go to China and apologize for things from the past, and would read on the side, because there was a tale risk where it could all go horribly wrong. And I think that I, I think the people that said there are opportunities here, and we need um, to say sorry, um, but also we need to recognize that this may not go well. I think that those people, in some respects, um, thought about the future a lot, a lot more carefully than certainly most policymakers that I came across during that period. Mm -hmm. So multinational corporations, I'm going to be provocative in the interest of time. Basically, I think you're right that they will be important actors. But I also think that they face the prospect of what I call the reverse Stockholm syndrome at some point, that, that, that they might find themselves having to choose. And I think when they face that prospect, their circuits will blow, um, frankly. I do not think that they are equipped um, culturally or psychologically at this stage for facing 
um, a choice of the world moving into some kind of um, cold water, cold war um, economy where there really are bifurcated uh, economic blocks with a tube uh, in between. And when I've raised that with business people all over the world, uh, off and on over the past decade or so, um, <laughs> because you know the market's big, sell, grow, um, well, choose, uh, you know, and I'm not saying there would be any difference in their circumstances given their jobs, but I don't think there is. Don't think they have bothered to look back at how their predecessors um, faced some of the problems before either uh, the previous century's most awful uh, conflicts. Let's take some questions. Um, we have a microphone that will be brought around. So put your hand up. I'll take a cluster of questions and try and cover the room. Um, and then uh, we'll see how we go. So first of all, the gentleman in the middle, the woman towards the top there. Anybody else that I haven't seen? Thank you. Um, it would be interesting to hear the panel's opinion on the growing protectionism in the West, uh, embodied by the US Inflation Reduction Act and the EU's response to it, and how the UK could respond to this. Thank you, and thank you for the panel as well. So the question that is highlighted for this event is how can international economic and legal institutions survive in this fractured geopolitical world? But you've underlined, I think, in your presentation, but also in your answer to Professor Ricard's question, that the geopolitical system is in large fractured because of these institutions which are themselves inherently fractured. So my question is, are they worth saving? Do we need to reinvent them? And if so, how? Thank you. Um, thanks. Um, I think by its very nature, we're all here in a very... Um, we, 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 you, you're talking about economic systems that relate to individuals and humans outside of here and I think that we don't always understand how things actually work. We're, we're talking on such a macro level and not addressing the micro level. So I suppose I, I suppose there wasn't really a question there. It's just to say it's like can we can we think more about the micro level when we talk about these things? think that this protectionism within the West that we've seen so far as the protectionism, kind of protectionism which we have the means to navigate, ameliorate, and compromise uh, over, rather than the kind of protectionism that either spirals down um, and completely undermines the world economy in a way that we uh, predecessors did Some people in the United States, and I don't just mean 
in the far reaches of the Republican Party think that the United States can navigate the scenarios I'm describing without friends and allies. And I think that is completely foolhardy. And it's foolhardy not because it's, it's untrue in all states of the world. Um, there are states of the world in which it, it, they can thrive entirely on their own. But the robust assumption for the United States to make, Washington to make, is that China will continue to grow incredibly rapidly. By the way, this is asymmetric. The robust assumption of Beijing to make is that they will not. Um, that would be the kind of mini-map strategy for the two um, places. But if, if the United States does have a mini-map strategy, then it will not want to fall out and bifurcate from the European Union. You can relate this to Brexit as well. Whatever you think about Brexit, a surprising thing about the Trump administration was that it both called out, uh, as it saw it, Beijing, and promoted um, Brexit. And I said to people in Washington at the time, that's Beijing's script. The policy towards Europe um, of divide and rule, that is absolutely Beijing's script as manifested in its Belt and Road negotiations with Hungary and other states in, um, in Europe. And I'm saying that because I think that Washington has, has uh, um, kind of unenviable capacity to not kind of think through its own immediate uh, um, interests. So I've now had a pessimistic note to my um, optimism. Um, you're right, in a sense we didn't answer the question, I didn't answer the question of this point, I apologize. Um, I, I try to indicate that I think the WTO is going to be vestigial and the real action is going to be in regional trade organizations. I think the IMF will survive, um, more or less as it is, because I think Washington has no incentives to give a greater voting power of funds in the bank to IMF. More importantly, this plays a big part in it, in fact. I think that the one element of lingering status quo is the role of the dollar and US finance, that the, um, the inertial value of incumbency in that area is massive. And I think this again plays into policy because those European capitals who, which have at times wanted to undermine the dollar world in the world because they have understandably been frustrated about the abuses of dollar power, are short-sighted given the extent to which the dollar world actually um, underpins the US security role. And we live in a part of the world, ever side of the channel, I'm not sure what to talk about. We live in a part of the world where we essentially um, um, outsource our security to, to Washington um, as part of a kind of grand um, bargain after the Senate war will persist to this day. I thought it's worth Basel um, because it's soft law. I think that would be the most adaptable to the change geopolitics. And you can't imagine them talking about cyber security in a G20 um, format or financial stability format. One can imagine them talking about lots of other things in that format that I can't quite imagine in the more formal organizations. Um, you're right, of course. Um, there are ways of presenting this book. I could have started off with fear. Um, the, the, the book kind of takes parts of it, this inspiration um, from the Jewish class, liberalism of fear, that, that the one kind of elemental, one entrance of light, the one kind of elemental need we all have is to kind of live without. Um, fear, and that that is something that when we're thinking about other states, 
we kind of have to think about how they treat their own citizens and how we treat our citizens. And if they treat their own citizens like that, how would they treat us if they could? And that doesn't always mean they will treat us badly. It's a judgment. So I, I, I was born in 1958. I grew up in decades where many Europeans really, really had problems with the way that the United States treated some of their um, citizens for obvious um, reasons. But that didn't make the United States a threat to us, and in fact, it wasn't. So these are the micro meets the macro at the desks of prime ministers and presidents. And they know that, but they particularly know that in any um, state where they require the acquiescence of the people to, to continue ruling, whether it's an electoral system or a non-electoral system. But I don't think that responds to you adequately, but I mean, of course I agree. The book is not kind of liberal or the capital L in the sense that the beginning and end of everything is the autonomy and dignity of the individual person. It is not a Kantian book in that, in that respect. Um, but it takes fear, I hope it takes fear, very seriously, and tries to. We, we are running out of time, but I am going to take a couple of, if these are quick questions. So you commented on the question of whether international organizations would have to choose a side, but say in this scenario three of a new Cold War, what do you think would be uh, the role of these sort of ascendant countries, namely India, uh, who don't really want to choose a side and have sort of declared that, um, especially with things like Ukraine currently, which sort of echoes the non-aligned movement, uh, India having a similar stance in the original Cold War? So the uh, front page of the New York Times today is reporting that um, for the first time in 60 years, China has recorded more deaths than births. And we can quite, we, it's a reasonable assumption that the days of sort of 8% growth for China on an annual basis are in the past. And that, that uh, sort of assumption of a rising, growing China has underpinned much Western thinking and thus policy making over the last 10 years. How and to a certain degree, it sounds like it's also in your in your book. Um, uh, how might a world defined by two large powers that are either growing very slowly or even degrowing? How might that in, uh, sort of influence competition between the two major world powers? Thanks. Paul, what does your um, vision of concentric um, circles mean in practical terms for the? global governance and the architecture we've inherited and prevailed for for the last uh, many decades and i'm thinking in particular of the united nations i mean the logical conclusion of what you say is that i mean in an organization which is embodies certain values we shouldn't really be sitting on in a security council with countries like the people's republic of china Talking with Pete's question at the end, I think one of the great values of the UN, like the G20, is that people meet physically. And I think the value of that was apparent when um, G20 met in Indonesia, and um, President Biden leader Xi had a, had a meeting. And if you think how much more difficult it would have been for them to meet um, without a G20 event, because one of them had to invite another, and they had to decide where. Um, it's going to be. And then if you think about how critical it would have been for them to go to the G20 and not meet, 
or for one of them not to go to G20. See, actually, I, I ended up thinking about the UN partly as a building, and the G20 as a kind of mobile building. And I think this is really, really useful, because you can meet without it being the biggest thing ever in the, the world. I think that the apparatus of the UN that has um, states that don't um, abide even by the periphery norms um, sitting on or even chairing human rights commissions is, is problematic. And I think that the agenda that you know, some United Nations bodies take into some um, issues, including often on trade, will end up being as, as marginal as they have been over the past 20 to 30 years. But that kind of thing right at the beginning, um, which is what happened to the great powers after the Second World War sitting around the Security Council table um, as a kind of manifestation of powers. Uh, that kind of remains useful for the moment. But uh, even that, that will eventually have to change as, as India um, rises. Let me turn then to the first question. I think India, um, the, the, you raised um, India's kind of slightly ambiguous at best um, role during the, the war on Ukraine, not, not as ambiguous as Beijing's. I mean, I think Ukraine war, war on Ukraine is the first proxy war. Putin could not be prosecuting this without at least the acquiescence of, of Xi and China. But against it, okay, the other way about India is, for me, the most important event in 2020, not COVID, which is pretty massive, it was the skirmishes on the Chinese India border. This was, I think, very much what historians will look back at. This, could, this is just an absolutely potentially gigantic moment in 21st history. What happens afterwards is that um, Delhi wants to revive the Pacific Quad, um, which Prime Minister Abe, I think, had, had, had generated in his first term as Prime Minister. So this is Japan. United States, Australia, and um, India, but had kind of withered away, partly because Delhi wasn't committed to it, and they changed their mind. So Delhi will want Delhi will want to find a, some kind of non-aligned um, route, but it, that doesn't make them hostile um, to us. And and I think I think India policy is just absolutely gigantically important, just as I think Indonesia policy is. And if I think back to those old homes that I was um, mentioning. The first people to mention the significance of Indonesia to me were those people quite, quite some time um, ago. Um, New York Times, the de demographic thing, two, two answers. One is, remember that China doesn't have to become as rich as us in per capita terms to be absolutely gigantic and they've still got loads of cash up to go in terms of GDP, capita, and productivity levels of productivity. What matters is that China has the critical mass to be an absolutely major player in, in the security world, and that is not going away. I mean, that's, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a thing. It's, it's, this, is a, it, this is where the parallel between France and Britain in the 18th century matters. There's nothing Britain or France can do to make the other one go away. Uh, but the root of our problem, this is perspectival, but the root of our problem was that um, at the beginning of the century, um, London had a problem with, with Paris basically promoting universalist absolutist monarchy. And at the end of the century, 
it was universalist, absolutist, revolution. And when Ber what Burke said about France was, our problem isn't with France's power, it's that it's the wrong kind of power. <laughs> Which seems to me to be quite instructive about the world that we find ourselves in. And yet we need to somehow, without being schizophrenic, we need to combine that thought which I think is an important form of policy, and for policymakers especially, with fascination and respect for the Chinese people and Chinese history, for the Confucian heritage. I, I actually don't think that's the most difficult thing in the world to do. I don't think we've been terribly good at doing it over the past 25 years. With that, I'm very much drawing this to a close. I'd like to thank very much Paul Tucker for his presentation tonight and for the book. But also to thank John and thank Stephanie for their comments, you for your questions, and thank you for coming here tonight. Safe journey home, and we look forward to seeing you at future Edison events. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.